You're listening to the Irish Times Worldview Podcast. Welcome to Worldview from the Irish Times. I'm Dennis Staunton. Today we'll hear from Athens and Brussels about the fallout from last weekend's marathon talks about a third bailout for Greece. But we begin with the news from Vienna that after years of negotiations, world powers have reached a deal with Iran that will limit Tehran's nuclear program in return for the lifting of international economic sanctions. Six world powers, the United States, Russia, China, Britain, France and Germany, have been hoping to ensure that Iran would not be able to develop a nuclear weapon. For its part, Iran has been seeking an end to crippling economic sanctions imposed by the United Nations, the United States and the European Union. To discuss the deal agreed in Vienna today, I'm joined now from Nicosia by our Middle East analyst Michael Jansen, from Washington by our correspondent Simon Carswell, and here in studio by the Irish Times foreign policy editor Patrick Smith. Michael Jansen, can I come to you first? What exactly is in the deal that's been agreed in Vienna? Um, The most important items in the deal involve um, the dramatic reduction of enriched uranium uh, held by Iran by 98%, plus the reduction of um, uh, centrifuges which produce this uh, material. Uh, Also, uh, it also involves the restructuring of a particular reactor which Iran has at Arak uh, so that it cannot produce plutonium uh, for a nuclear bomb. Also, the deal involves very intrusive inspections by the International Atomic Energy Agency. And uh, for the Iranian side, it also involves the lifting of sanctions as the different uh, items are um, implemented by Iran, sanctions will be lifted, and that means all sanctions. That means banking sanctions, trade sanctions, oil sales sanctions, and uh, business sanctions. This is very important for Iranians because the Iranian people have suffered a great deal um, due to the sanctions regime which has been imposed Uh, in uh, ever-tightening measures over the past 40 years. Why was uh, was Iran so keen to do this deal? I mean, there there were obviously certain divisions that appeared within the leadership and certainly within the political system in Iran over the past few years about how far they were prepared to go. But in the last few months, it has appeared that uh, the Iranians have been very eager to conclude this agreement. Well, one of the main reasons is that um, the the economy of Iran has shrunk. I mean, it it actually hasn't, it it just hasn't grown over the past uh, 10 years. So it is about 20% smaller than it should be. And um, Iran uh, is lacking in medicines, medical equipment, uh, spare parts for airplanes. It's very dangerous to fly on Iranian planes these days and many other items which the Iranian people are demanding. Also, Iran's unemployment is very high. So the Iranian leadership has been under considerable pressure, uh, particularly since Hassan Rouhani was elected as president, uh, to do a deal. And the Iranian hardliners have been sidelined because uh, Grand Ayatollah Ali Khamenei has come down on the side of the negotiations. 
And as far as one knows, he must approve of this uh, agreement. Uh, otherwise, it wouldn't be going through. Uh, Simon Carswell in Washington, uh, President Obama uh, must be uh, pleased that uh, this deal has been done insofar as it's uh, one of the most dramatic uh, foreign policy initiatives of his entire presidency. But he's going to face some problems in Congress, isn't he? Well, he is. And I mean, I'd say he's been uh, cautiously welcoming of the deal. He says this is an opportunity to move in a new direction, that everyone should seize this opportunity. And this demonstrates really meaningful change and change that can make America safer and more secure. But, you know, if the hard work is just ending in Vienna with the negotiations, it's really only just beginning in Washington. Um, he's got a struggle on his hands, really, to convince Congress that this is the right deal. Uh, the Senate is where everyone is watching, really, because the 54 Republicans and 46 Democrats, he doesn't have control of the Senate. Now, the, the magic number is 67. If, he, uh, if there are enough senators, 67 senators, uh, to vote against the deal, then that can override a presidential veto. Now, he was quite strong when he was discussing the statement, uh, the agreement today in his statement from the White House. And in that, he said that he will veto any legislation that looks to block this deal. Congress has 60 days from Sunday to review it, uh, and Obama during that time, he cannot waive the sanctions. Um, and if Congress rejects the deal, Obama is going to veto it, as he has said. So the question is whether we'll get those 67 votes. Congress, many senators aren't happy, and that includes some of his fellow Democrats. They wanted to ratchet up sanctions. They wanted to get it in order to get a better deal. They wanted a deal that would not allow them, uh, the Iranians, to enrich, enrich uranium. And the major concern expressed by most Republicans and some Democrats is that this deal locks in a nuclear program rather than dismantling one, and that's a major concern. Uh, so uh, all eyes are really on the Democrats in the Senate. Um, a key figure in all of this is... Uh, Chuck Schumer, he is the number three ranking uh, senator, Democratic senator, and he's going to be a future either Democratic majority leader or minority leader when Harry Reid, the current leader in the Senate, retires after the 2016 elections. And the problem for Obama is that a lot of these Senate Democrats who are uneasy about the deal, they represent large Jewish constituencies who are clearly supportive of Israel. And Chuck Schumer stepped into the boots of Robert Menendez, who was chairman of the Senate Foreign Relations Committee, but he's, he's been somewhat tarnished recently with um, a court case over corruption. So Schumer is one to watch, and will he come out against uh, this deal or not? He was amongst a group of senators who supported legislation to impose sanctions if there was no deal. Uh, and really, it comes down to uh, him and others, the likes of Ben Cardin, who's a senior and influential senator from Maryland, Kirsten Gillibrand from New York, and Cory Booker from New Jersey. Uh, and also on the Republican side, there's a possibility that Obama might get some allies uh, for the deal, even though Bob Corker, who's an influential Republican as chairman of the Senate Foreign Relations Committee, he has said that he was concerned that this wasn't dismantling the program, yet he hasn't gone quite as far as some of the Republicans. Uh, there were 47 of them that wrote a letter to, uh, to Iran saying that they would withdraw support 
and um, if there was an agreement. So he may get some support from Republicans for this agreement, but really there's a hell of a lot of negotiation to be done on Capitol Hill between uh, between the White House and Congress on and, this deal. And Simon, what about Hillary Clinton? Hillary Clinton was part of the original negotiations. Indeed, she uh, helped to organise the secret talks that uh, that were a prelude to the formal negotiations uh, involving the US with Iran. So presumably she's going to back the deal. I think she is. We haven't heard from her yet today. We have heard from lots of other um, prospective uh, uh, presidential candidates on the Republican side, but uh, I haven't heard from her yet. Um, Rick Santorum, one of the Republicans, has described his deal as a folly. Lindsey Graham, who's the most uh, vocal on the foreign policy, he's really running his presidential campaign on foreign policy and specifically on the Middle East. He says this deal is akin to declaring war on Israel and the Sunni Arabs. These are the Arab states that, um, that, that, that are allies of the U.S. And he's described it as the most dangerous, irresponsible step he's ever seen in watching the Middle East. So Obama has a lot of work to do, really, to convince um, members of Congress. And the presidential election is going to provide some kind of awkward background noise. I think there was two things that were notable as well in Obama's uh, his statement, his address from the White House. He spoke for about 14 minutes, and about five, six minutes was about the nuts and bolts of the deal. But more than half of his speech was about trying to sell it, sell it to Congress and his allies, sell it to Israel and Sunni Arabs and Gulf states uh, as well. So he really, uh, he's, that, that kind of indicates just exactly the, the challenge he has ahead. And it's also notable as well, he thanked Congress for, effective, uh, for imposing effective sanctions that got Iran to this position before he thanked the uh, P5 plus one, the, the world powers that helped the U.S. and uh, to negotiate this deal with Iran, and before uh, he thanks some of uh, the country's allies. So I think that's very. Uh, it shows really that, that where uh, Obama's eyes are on now, and trying to convince skeptical lawmakers in here in Washington. Paddy Smith, how big a deal is this uh, if indeed it gets approval on all sides? It's it's a very important. I mean, if I can continue with what uh, Simon was saying about in, in in terms of American politics, it's one of the big legacy issues uh, that that will mark out uh, Obama's uh, presidency if if he succeeds in getting a deal through. And I would just enter a couple of caveats uh, to 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 what Simon was saying. He can remove by executive action some of the sanctions himself, and uh, which which would enable him certainly to to to. Although I think he has suggested that he won't. He has suggested that he won't, but uh, he has been prepared to use executive action really for the first time on a number of significant issues. And the the other thing is that he does require the the opposition to this to the uh, um, deal would require two thirds of the, of the the vote in Congress to overcome a presidential veto, uh, and it's extremely unlikely that they would be able to muster a full two two thirds. Um, in terms of of global politics, it, this is an uh, this is a very important uh, development because it it begins to bring Iran in from the cold. It changes uh, to some extent the regional dynamic in in the in the Middle East in a, in a very important way. For some time, the Americans have been keen to reach out to to, to Iran, but have been constrained by the discussions on on. Um, uh, the nuclear program. And for example, we know that uh, in uh, Syria at the moment, American planes are bombing ISIS. Uh, and that to do that, they have to tic-tac with the Iranians who are working with Assad 
also against uh, against ISIS, and that there are sort of back channels through Iraq by which they have been talking. But this should begin to make such collaboration more more uh, straightforward, more open. It shifts the balance in the region away, perhaps from from uh, Saudi uh, Arabia and uh, and its acolytes, uh, bringing um, Iran more more centrally, uh, more respectably into a lot of the discussions. Um, for example, it should make easier discussions uh, on the future of, of, of Iraq uh, as, as well. So it is a, it is a very important uh, political uh, agreement. Uh, Michael Jansen, is that true that it will actually uh, make discussions on the future of Iraq easier, given that one of the big problems in Iraq is the disenchantment of the Sunni population, who are likely to be more disenchanted if Iran is, uh, appears to become more powerful yet? Well, it depends on what Iran does in Iraq. Uh, if Iran puts some pressure on the Baghdad government, which is Shia-dominated, um, to uh, reconcile with the Sunnis and to bring them into the political system, um, this could be a very positive development. So far, Iran hasn't done that. Um, and uh, it's, it's difficult to see whether it will or not. But if it chooses to do so, Iran can play a very positive role in Iraq. But by doing that, uh, it can uh, reduce some of the resistance from the Shia militiamen and so on, because most of these more, more powerful militias are under Iranian control. One of the reasons, Michael, that uh, Saudi Arabia and Israel and some other uh, countries in the region are uneasy about this deal is that they're worried that uh, the, uh, all this new money that uh, Iran is going to uh, be able to earn once the sanctions are lifted, that some of that money uh, could be spent on projecting Iranian power in the region by uh, supporting proxies, as it does, uh, stepping up its support for Hezbollah, for various other uh, proxies in the region, and that essentially it could become a more troublesome force in, uh, in the Middle East than it is already. Well, uh, with sanctions, Iran has projected its power rather adequately, actually, um, uh, particularly since the Arab Spring of 2011. The Iranian people expect major economic improvements. And so most of the money which comes back will be spent on uh, particularly the oil infrastructure, which has been uh, undermined by years of neglect and the lack of spare parts and all these kind of things, um, and also on other infrastructure. And uh, developing Iran's trade with the external world um, and expanding its horizons. Uh, I don't think that they will spend a lot of money on making trouble in the region. And if it has good relations with the United States and the Western powers, particularly Europe, Iran could be constrained by such relations. Uh, the Saudis, I think, are paranoid about Iran. Um, and they are paranoid because Iran is successful in what it does, whereas their, uh, well, stooges, <laughs> like the Islamic State and the Nusra group, which is the offshoot of al-Qaeda, are not all that successful. And the Saudis, uh, and they, they are being demonized by the Western powers because of their radical approach to governance and fighting um, 
other Arab regimes. What does this, Michael, do for the position of uh, President Rouhani in Iran? Uh, Rouhani's position should be greatly strengthened. And according to some Iranian uh, human rights groups, um, he should perhaps be able to liberalize uh, the political system to a certain extent and also develop good relations with other powers uh, outside uh, the region. Finally, Paddy, if I can ask you, if, if uh, indeed the deal goes through, it's uh, part of the idea is this is the, the starting point for a general improvement of relations between Iran and the, uh, the world powers. How good could that relationship become between uh, Iran and the Europeans and the Americans? I think we're going. To, it's it's going to be slow, and I think. Um, but I but I think that the, that uh, um, one gets the sense in that in Iran there is a greater understanding now than there has been for for twenty years or more that it it has an interest in uh, being part of the world community and and uh, certainly an economic interest in trading. Well, one of the things that this deal will do, for example, is free access by uh, Iran once the thing is verified to something like 100 billion Euro, uh, dollars of Iranian assets which have been frozen o overseas. And I think that Iran uh, does see uh, now increasingly, and particularly the group around uh, Rouhani, that it has an interest in 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 good relations, and that that is that is very positive. Paddy Smith, Michael Jansen, and Simon Carswell, thank you. You're listening to Worldview from the Irish Times with me, Dennis Staunton. After 17 hours of talks in Brussels last weekend, Eurozone leaders agreed to start negotiations with Greece on a third bailout package worth more than 80 billion euros. While the markets welcomed the news that Greece would now remain in the euro, the political fallout from the weekend's talks was toxic, with Greece's Prime Minister Alexis Tsipras accused by some supporters of selling out for agreeing to a package of austerity measures harsher than those rejected by Greek voters in a referendum a week earlier. Meanwhile, Germany was accused of throwing its weight around and bullying a small, weak EU member state. Indeed, some commentators have accused Germany and its allies of wrecking the Eurozone and trashing the solidarity that holds the European Union together. So should we be rejoicing or lamenting over the latest Greek bailout? And how sure can we be that it will even happen? To find out, I'm joined now from Brussels by our European correspondent Suzanne Lynch and from Athens by foreign affairs correspondent Ruan McCormick. Suzanne, can you explain to us briefly and as simply as possible what it was actually agreed last weekend? Um, I suppose the best way to describe it is a, a conditional agreement Essentially, Eurozone leaders uh, decided to give political backing for a third bailout for Greece on condition that the Greek government pass a number of reforms by Wednesday. Um, and then if they are judged to have, have passed those, well, then um, a number of parliaments will go to their own. Uh, six countries need to get parliamentary approval for a third bailout. So that process will start by the end of the week. Um, and then discussions will begin with the IMF about devising a new bailout uh, for Greece that will last until 2018. Once Greece agrees to all of these reforms and approves these reforms, uh, this has to be approved in a number of European parliaments? Yes, so up to six countries need to approve it. Now, it depends whether it depends on the scope and the scale of the deal, whether it will need a full plenary vote 
or maybe just a, a committee or a cap sign off on this. Um, now, it looks likely it'll go to German Bundestag, for example, but already Merkel has said she's prepared to kind of back, back it. Um, but I suppose another aspect of this is even though we were talking about this third bailout, which looks to be it's going to be at least over 80 billion, uh, in the short term, something's going to have to be worked out in the next week, really, about bridge financing, they're calling it. That's um, some kind of uh, mechanism to try and tackle Greece's short-term financing needs. And really, that means it's repayment uh, to the IMF, it's arrears to the IMF essentially, um, and also there is quite a substantial ECB repayment due on Monday. That's 3.5 billion euro. So really, something has to be done before then. Uh, so finance ministers on Tuesday were trying to discuss this idea of bridge financing. It's quite a technical issue. Uh, where would the money come from? There was talk of maybe an EFSF, EFSM fund being used which would involve countries, non-Euro countries like Britain and Poland. Britain has already said as opposed to that. Ruan McCormick in Athens, uh, Alexis Tsipras uh, has to now uh, push through his parliament a number of measures which uh, were effectively harsher than what the Greek people voted against uh, just over a week ago. Will he manage it? It's difficult to say. Um, I think the impression you get from members of parliament is much the same impression you get on the streets, which is that there's huge disappointment and anger, particularly uh, among Syriza's own supporters and within that 61% of the population that voted no in the referendum 10 days ago, thinking that they were rejecting proposals that weren't nearly as harsh as, as these ones. Um, in the parliament, you have the three main opposition parties, New Democracy, PASOK and Potami, saying they can live with this and that they'll vote for the austerity measures when they come before the parliament today and tomorrow. But within Cyprus's government, the recriminations have been intense, and he's really struggling now to contain an all-out rebellion among his own MPs. He's going to lose a chunk of the far-left faction of the party known as the Left Platform, which has called this a humiliation and says it has to be rejected. He may also lose at least some members of his junior coalition partner, uh, Independent Greeks, their leader, Panos Kamenos, uh, has tried to have it both ways. He's been saying that uh, the party will vote for some measures but not others and that it intends, intends to remain in government. But the big question is how many Syriza MPs will defect. Um, the estimates range from 15 to 50. And if it was at the higher end of that range, you'd be talking about one third of the series of parliamentary party uh, voting against the prime minister. All of this trouble has been brewing since Saturday when 17 series of MPs failed to vote with the government when the parliament authorised it to begin negotiations with the creditors on the basis of that document they produced last, uh, that Cyprus produced last Thursday. Uh, and to that 17, you can probably add at least another 15 and maybe more. Um, plus, he's going to lose at least two cabinet members as well. However, even if that many MPs broke the party whip, um, the laws would still probably be enacted. And that's because the three main opposition parties have said they'll vote for them. Uh, and by my calculation, Cyprus would have to lose two thirds of his parliamentary party for these measures to be defeated. He has 140, 149 seats. Um, so even if his own party vote was reduced to 45, which would be uh, a spectacular collapse, uh, he could still pass the bills. So what does all that mean? It means that the likelihood is that the measures will pass, um, but it also looks almost certain that Cyprus will lose its majority in Parliament, which means the coalition will be uh, destabilised uh, and will probably only stagger on for a few months before uh, new elections are held. And if you look at the state of the opposition parties, uh, are we expecting that Syriza would nonetheless win a new election if it were to happen in a few months? 
that's what the opinion polls suggest, yeah. Um, there's been some speculation that Cyprus could invite the opposition to form a government of national unity um, with the express purpose of pushing these measures through um, because it would be very difficult. He may emerge from this week with uh, you know, having passed these VAT increase, increases in pension reforms uh, through Parliament, but much diminished in that he would have lost his, his majority. And you can't really keep going like that for, uh, for, for very much longer. Um, if he were to initiate the creation of some sort of government of national unity, it's been suggested, including um, within his own party, that he might not lead it, um, given that he promised only last week that he wouldn't be the one to uh, implement an austerity program like this. Why did you do the deal? Well, what he's been saying, what, what, what he's been saying is, I mean, he hasn't pretended for a minute that this is a good deal. Um, that's the first thing to say. He's being quite frank with people. He's not pretending that this is what Syriza was elected to do uh, or what it spent the last six months fighting for. A lot of his colleagues, not to mention his voters, were frankly stunned last Thursday when he, when he affected this 180-degree policy turn by proposing €13 billion euro worth of tax increases and spending cuts. Um, now to explain why he felt he had to do this, he's essentially been saying, look, we pushed hard, we spent six months fighting for better terms, we brought these talks to the wire, and we even called that last-minute referendum in the hope that a democratic mandate would improve our negotiating hand. But the simple fact is that it didn't, he says. Um, after the referendum, the creditors dug in, they gave us an ultimatum, they said sign on the dotted line or leave the euro, and Cyprus says he was confronted with um, adversaries who had it in for Greece, basically. He says they were using economic problems as cover for achieving a political objective or what became a political objective, which was to get Greece out of the Eurozone. And he says by late last week, by which time the Greek economy was in a tailspin, the banks had been closed for two weeks, uh, and cash was very visibly running out, that the country had reached what he called the burning zone. So he had to make a decision. And given that Syriza had no mandate to bring Greece out of the euro, as he saw it, he was left with no choice, and it was simple as that. Now, accepting austerity was one thing, but the deal he brought home on Monday is, is pretty much Syriza's worst nightmare. And to sell it, he's had one over, overarching message, I suppose, which is, look, this is the best deal we could have got in the circumstances. He reminds people that Germany proposed uh, suspending Greece temporarily from the eurozone as late as Sunday. Uh, and that the creditors also wanted this trust for the proceeds of Greek assets to be located in Luxembourg, and that was something else he successfully resisted. He's also been trying to put the best possible gloss on the deal itself. Um, he's been focusing on one or two aspects of it, um, somewhat half-heartedly, it should be said. But in the final text, he points out that the Eurogroup says it stands ready to consider steps aimed at um, making Greece's debts more sustainable. It's a pretty vague commitment. It's contingent on Greece fully implementing the initial stages of the bailout program. But Cyprus says, look, this didn't appear in the draft that they gave us on June 26th or 27th, which went to the people in the referendum. The second win, if you can call it that, that Cyprus points to is that the deal rejected in the referendum was for a five-month, seven billion euro lifeline, um, after which Greece would have had to go back and negotiate another long-term bailout anyway. Whereas this time, in exchange for broadly similar cuts and tax hikes, uh, Greece will be funded for three years and it'll probably end up getting about uh, 85 or 86 billion euros. So overall, he says, look, I know these measures are shocking. I know they're recessionary. But my hope is that the, the big growth package I secured, uh, possible debt restructuring, that all of that will improve market confidence in time. It'll show people that Grexit is off the agenda. And the result of that, I hope, 
is that investment will increase and that the recessionary impact will uh, be somewhat offset. Ruan McCormick in Athens and Suzanne Lynch in Brussels, thank you. To discuss the situation in Greece and in the Eurozone, I'm joined now in studio by the Irish Times uh, Managing Editor Cliff Taylor, Irish Times columnist Fintan O'Toole and Foreign Policy Editor Patrick Smith. Uh, Cliff, this package of uh, measures, will it work in terms of uh, sorting out Greece's problems or indeed helping it to do so? I don't think so. Uh, it, it does avoid, uh, or if it's agreed, it will avoid a Greek exit from the Eurozone and the chaos that that would create. But the plan itself doesn't look sustainable for one simple reason, that Greece's debts are already too high. And what's now going to happen is that even more is going to be added to that debt by taking on further borrowings from the EU and the IMF. Uh, the IMF have calculated today, according to a report from Reuters, uh, that the Greek debt burden is now going to rise towards 200% of GDP, which is stratospheric by any by any calculations. And for, to have any chance of getting out of that kind of debt burden, if you like, one of two things needs to happen. First of all, our two things need to happen, really. The economy has to grow at a very uh, fast rate to, to, to be able to service a higher level of debt. That clearly isn't going to happen with Greece now because uh, the additional measures are going to be recessionary. Cash is being taken out of the economy through tax rises and spending cuts. Uh, there's a bit of window dressing in terms of extra EU money going in, but it will go no way to, to, to compensate for, for the extra hit that the economy is going to take. And remember, the economy is already in chaos, so even stabilising it now is a is a very substantial job. The second thing, you know, that, that could be done is obviously some kind of a write-off or, or, or very aggressive restructuring of the debt that hasn't been agreed as part of the deal. We were told we were told that it would be looked at, uh, some kind of restructuring of the debt, not a write-off, but a restructuring would be looked at at the time of the first review. We don't know how fundamental that's going to be. Uh, the suggestion is it, it, it mightn't be particularly fundamental, it might be more incremental. Uh, the e, the IMF has said today in its calculations, you know, that Greece needs some kind of extraordinary period of 30 years in terms of grace, in terms of starting to repay its debts, if it is to have a chance of emerging from this in one piece. Uh, what are the chances of the Euro leaders granting something like that? Pretty slim on the basis of what we saw over the weekend, I think you'd have to say. So this, this doesn't look sustainable. And I think it's failed... The first test of any bailout programme really is that it has to be credible. It has to make people stand back and say, oh, OK, this problem is being dealt with. Uh, and for all, we hated our own our own bailout when it came along and for all the faults that it had, there was a feeling when the EU and IMF came along and they committed a very large amount of money that, OK, this was going to be enough and that Ireland had some chance of getting out of this. Uh, that perception is, is, is not now abroad in terms of Greece. Pretty much every analyst internationally is saying the debt is too high. This isn't going to work. Fintan O'Toole, writing in the Irish Times today, you suggest that what we saw over the weekend was effectively the end of the European Union as we know it. Why? Well, I think the European Union as we've known it um, was really, you know, it was a project. Um, and it was, a, it was a, an imaginative project, a political project. And it was based on... Uh, a fairly simple narrative, which was the narrative of ever a closer union, uh, that, you know, this was sort of starting small and it was going to gradually move towards a point at which we, we would be living in a, in a unified political entity. And really that was underpinned by three things. One was that this process would be entirely consensual, you know, that the pooling of sovereignty that was involved in this by nation states was really at the pace of the nation states. So nobody would be forced to pool any of their sovereignty. The second thing was that uh, that this, this process was irreversible, right? So that although it was incremental, every step along the way, you couldn't go back because if you went back, then the whole thing would unravel. 
And the third thing, which was never really spoken very clearly, but was absolutely there all the time, was containing Germany. And by the way, this is not an anti-German point. The Germans were concerned to contain Germany. You know, it was really understood by a generation, post-war generation of German leaders, that the European Union gave Germany a wonderful opportunity to integrate itself into Europe and to save itself from... From, well, from what we all know, right? So, so th- those were the three underlying conditions. And I think what we saw over the weekend was the culmination, obviously, of a, of a long period of crisis. But it, it reached a point over the weekend when all three of those basic conditions unraveled. The idea of the European Union as a consensual institution has now gone. I mean, the European Union has become an institution which is which is capable of being coercive and has shown us and was very deliberately coercive. I mean, some of the things that were done over the weekend... You know, you have to put this in the context of what Cliff has just been saying, that it has no economic point. You know, so, so the, the idea that this is, you know, somehow putting in, pu- putting in place a, 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 a tough medicine which is going to cure the patient, nobody believes it's going to cure the patient. So what is the point? The point is purely political. It's demonstrative. It's to say we can hold the feet of any recalcitrant European, particularly Eurozone member, to the fire. We can make them do what we want. And we will do this in the most humiliating, most obvious way. Some of the things that we saw, for, you know, particularly, for example, saying we're going to take 50 billion of your assets, which, by the way, the Greeks don't have. But we're going to take them. I'm going to put them in a, in a fund in Luxembourg. I mean, that was purely there to say, you know, look, we can do whatever we like. There's no limit to what we can say. OK, we won't do that in the end. But, but we're willing to put it on the table as a serious proposition. Secondly, the, the idea that this was that the whole process is, is irreversible, of course, once they agreed, and OK, it was in brackets, but it was put on the table, the, 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 the Schauble plan for so-called temporary Grexit, which everybody knows is complete nonsense. There's no such thing as temporary exit. Exit is exit. Once that was put on the table, then the whole idea of the euro being irreversible, uh, which, by the way, we all signed up to. It's European law. It's in the Maastricht Treaty. You know, we had a referendum on it. It was just torn up. It's, it's just gone now. It's not irreversible anymore. The idea that any member can be effectively forced out of the, uh, the, the eurozone uh, if, if, if the powers that be <laughs> so wish is, is now on the table. And thirdly, of course, we saw Germany... Uh, in a really, really serious way, uh, exerting a kind of power. There's no question in anybody's mind now as to who is the top dog at the European table. And it is Germany. And, and you know, as recently as three or four years ago, very senior German figures like, like Helmut Schmidt, who, who was Chancellor of Germany, who's not a kind of radical, very much a mainstream, you know, Europhile figure, was warning Germany, you know, warning his own country, saying, don't do this, folks, don't go there. Which there, there can never be a point at which Germany becomes even the first among equals. But it's actually got worse than that because it's now the first among unequals. The European Union is an unequal partnership. Nobody believes that Greece is now an equal in the European Union to, to Finland. And this is pretty much like human rights everywhere. You, you know, nobody's equal unless everybody's equal. If there's one member of this group, which is which is in an unequal status, then everybody is potentially so. And this is really an existential crisis for the European Union. An existential crisis? Paddy Smith, uh, is this the end of the European Union as we know it? Well, is this the Rubicon that, 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 that has been crossed and, and everything is going to unravel from here? Um, I think it's very serious. I, th- I think there's no doubt that, that what's happened uh, poses really sharp questions about the future of the European Union and its its uh, legitimacy, its democracy. Uh, people people are going to look at the thing, and it's going to be much more difficult for European leaders to to persuade their peoples that this is uh, essentially a democratic uh, process. But we have to be clear, for example, that uh, the ability to expel member states is not it, it was not 
first broached this weekend. It was actually part of the last treaty that, that the ability to expel... We saw from the European Union, from the, not from the Euro. From the European Union. Uh, the Euro is, a, is an inner part of... It's not altogether surprising that if you could expel people from, from the, uh, uh, the uh, European Union that you could expel them from, from uh, the, the, the Euro. Uh, so I think, uh, yes, there are all sorts of extremely worrying things, but, but what's happening at the same time uh, uh, as this... Finton's talking about existential crisis, is that leaders are again talking much more seriously about the need to move on, to move further forward towards uh, political and monetary union, saying that the crisis has arisen because we haven't gone far enough in the past. And I don't think that the, the, the process of is, is actually really is going backwards. Now, it's got to be an entirely different, much more democratic project. And democracy and accountability has going to have to be put at the centre of it. And I think that European leaders will not be able to get away with with further progress unless they do but that. But we've seen an awful lot of integration, of economic policy integration, since, the, since 2008. The speed of it has been remarkably fast. And yet... Uh, there is this sense, and you can see it in polling, there is a sense of uh, uh, that, that people feel alienated from it in many parts of Europe for one reason or another. Yes, I think they, they do. But you have to say that the economic integration that we're talking about uh, uh, has is, is after Greece got itself into so much uh, financial difficulties. You can't say that the supervision that Brussels is going to be involved in in, in, in national economies is a cause of what happened in, in Greece. In fact, it's the opposite. It's the fact that Greece was able to do things completely uncontrolled. Its previous governments were irresponsible. In fact, they lied to the, the European Union. So that's not that's not exactly um, the, the question, if you know what I mean. But is, is it not also the case, that Cliff, that if you're uh, looking at this from Northern Europe, if you're looking at it from the point of view of Germany, you regard uh, the European Union as a rules-based organisation and uh, part of your view of that is that if you're going to have a rules-based organisation, you must have some powers of coercion to ensure that uh, those who sign up to those rules actually abide by them. Yeah, well, I mean, you must have rules, and the rules must be must must be abided by, and uh, there must be sanctions for those who 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 don't don't keep to the rules. I think that's right. I I think um, coming back to what's happened since the crisis broke, it's interesting to see that the the areas in which integration has progressed, and and the areas that are still, at the moment anyway, appear to be off limits. So we've had a lot of tightening up, for example, of fiscal rules uh, to control the budgets, and you know. We see it in our own budgetary process. It's the same in the budgetary process right through the euro area. We've seen a lot of tightening up in banking supervision, and you could see this as a prelude to you know to, to a move towards a you know a full monetary and, and fiscal integration. But what that would mean would be that you have to introduce some more economic pooling. For example, something like euro bonds, where where, where all the countries could raise could could raise borrowings at the same interest rate, you know, backed by, backed by the union, if you like. The problem is that that kind of Additional step costs money to the richer member states, the Germanys, the Netherlands, um, and, and, and that central grouping. So I think what we've seen since the crisis broke is, is a tightening of the rules to try and keep the, the difficult children, if you like, in line. But we haven't yet seen a serious discussion about, well, what's the next step? If we're going to make this thing work, are, are we really in for this kind of pooling of sovereignty and the kind of fiscal transfers? Uh, you know, which very respected international voices, for example, Mark Carney, the head of the Bank of England, says, look, there isn't a single currency 
anywhere in the world that has worked in the long term without long-term fiscal transfers b- b- between its member states. Fintan, do you think that could be the problem, that actually it's a sort of a design flaw in the single currency as opposed to the entire European project going off the rails? I, I would completely agree with that. I mean, absolutely, the euro is the problem. Um, and I have to say it's a problem I didn't foresee at all. I, I you know, mea culpa, I've, I've never uh, thought that the euro would, would prove to be so catastrophic. Um, but... but it has it's not the euro in itself, but it's the interaction of the, uh, the the single currency and the lack of political structures in which it can function in a democratic way. Uh, that, that has proved to be catastrophic. Now, uh, but but what's happened is that the the euro crisis itself has then driven political developments much faster, much much way beyond any kind of political capacity to really think about them and be, beyond any kind of democratic structures. Um, it, the European Union itself did a blueprint of, of the future, you know, at, 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 as, as the crisis was unfolding. And as Jürgen Habermas, the, the great German philosopher, uh, pointed out about it, it put democracy at the end, right? So it basically said, we're going to do all these new structures. We're going to get all these new powers, all this new integration, which we have to do in order to save the euro or to make the euro work. And then we'll think about democracy, you know. And what we're realizing now is this this just won't work, you know, that that actually that sequencing is just not possible. I'm quite pessimistic at the moment because I think there's no evidence at all among the European elites that it has any real understanding of the degree to which it it has alienated the European public. The late Peter Mayer, uh, wonderful Irish political scientist, talk about Euro- talks about the European Union as a democracy without a demos, you know, without a people, and that's that's more true now than it has ever been. I think because of these actions, because of the the, the, the way in which the Euro the, the Euro crisis has unfolded, and. I mean, I don't disagree at all with Paddy's analysis. I mean, of course, the, the, the plan is, to, is for more Europe. I mean, to move it forward. But the basis on which you could move it forward, the democratic consent, the involvement of people, is, is not just absent, but it's receding. We're actually we're getting a greater and greater gap. So the, the, the legitimacy, the mandate, the, de- the democratic will that might be behind this, this huge pro- project of, of integration uh, is, is not just lacking, but it's, it's actually ebbing away, I would think. But isn't part of it, Paddy, what we're looking at is just the fact that centre-right parties are governing most uh, member states uh, in the European Union right now. And so that the, 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 the political choices and the political tilt that you're seeing in the European Union reflects to some extent that balance of forces. Yes, I think that's true, and I think that the the rise of of but I mean, uh, the the rise of of Euroscepticism throughout Europe and the uh, uh, is 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 a product of the political crisis that has has come about from from the euro. So it's all playing in, into each other and, and reinforcing the, these uh, these uh, processes. Uh, and it's certainly the case, for example, uh, as Cliff was talking about euro bonds and, and collective borrowing it would seem to me that that was essentially a social democratic type type project and it's it's certainly clear to me that that germany under merkel is is not going to be enthusiastic about that until and an, uh, it it sees a change change of government uh, it's it is a very it's not a technocratic process it's not a these are not technical changes we're talking about they're very intensely political and and it's seriously problematic paddy smith fintan o'toole and cliff taylor thank you And that's all from this edition of Worldview. You can find more on all our stories at irishtimes.com. But from producer Sinead O'Shea, sound engineer Gary White, and from me, Dennis Staunton, goodbye.